and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Ward to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Lucy is a writer and former journalist, having written for The Guardian and The Independent. Today, we will begin our conversation about her debut book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, which is published by One World Publications and distributed by Simon & Schuster. Lucy, before we get started on the main part of the story, I think we may get up to speed on a few concepts. First of all, of course, what was the scourge that was smallpox? Smallpox was a disease that by the 18th century was so virulent, a virus, that it was known as the speckled monster. It was a disease that had been around for millennia. No one quite knows how how far back, but there are smallpox-like lesions on the faces of Egyptian mummies. So, you know, we're talking two and a half millennia at least. And by the time we get to the 18th century, the virus had become more virulent than ever. And it was really so severe that one in five of those people who suffered from it actually died. And it was almost impossible to avoid. In fact, parents in the 18th century were told not to count their children until they'd actually had smallpox because it particularly attacked infants and young children. So a really brutal disease that swept in kind of epidemic waves across Europe and would appear really in cycles in countries. So it would be an epidemic and vulnerable people would die. Others, of course, would survive, although they'd be scarred and disfigured. And then you'd have perhaps a, you know, a five-year gap. And then, of course, more children would be born and more vulnerable people would therefore be around and then the next wave would carry them off too. So, you know, a really brutal, dreaded disease that had an extraordinary impact, you know, in terms of limiting people's freedom. People obviously were desperate to avoid this. I found examples during my research of people who would just live near London but would never go anywhere near the capital out of fear of smallpox. And it had an enormous cultural impact too, not least because, of course, it left these terrible scars and disfigurement that were always present. So, you you know, you were never able to get away from the idea of this speckled monster. And beyond the human and cultural toll, such a pestilence is also really bad for the economy. And for a nation of shopkeepers, that just would not do. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And again, I live in a county called Essex, which is in the southeast of England, just sort of north and east of London. And there's a quite a remarkable amount of information about people's experiences of smallpox from this county. And in fact, it's the county that the doctor in my book, Thomas Dinsdale, was born in. Yeah, I found accounts here of towns where, as the epidemic struck, markets would be closed, shops would be closed, schools would close, the courts, the assizes would also shut down. You know, so of course, yeah, huge economic impact in that sense. And towns would then desperately have to try to advertise the fact that they were smallpox free and they would take out advertisements in the newspapers once the virus had kind of passed on and things were going to reopen. And they would they would try and tell people, you know, the virus is gone and you can come to the market again. And the other impact economically was on kind of welfare, healthcare, such as it was in England in the 18th century. There's obviously no national healthcare system, of course, but there was no top-down single system. But parishes had responsibility for caring for the poor of their area. And so when people were sick, it was the parish that would pay for nursing, in fact, for the burial of people who died of smallpox. And that was no small 
cost for their finances. And in fact, it's interesting sometimes reading this kind of balancing act they did, weighing up the cost of inoculation, general inoculation that we'll come to, versus the kind of huge cost of paying for nursing of people who had to be isolated away from the community to make sure that smallpox didn't spread. This was before they had any idea of how to tackle it. The only way was to move people to the pest house and kind of provide some kind of basic nursing care. And then when their families were perhaps, you know, struggling while someone was ill or had died of smallpox, then of course they too had to be supported by the parish and they had to be provided with food and clothes and maybe kindling to keep them warm, shelter. So yeah, it all had great impact economically in different ways on communities in, in Britain and of course beyond. And of course, the health of the people is also the health of the nation. It seems like it would greatly impact the ability to defend one's own country or to try to seek expansion of the empire. Yeah, I'm not sure how much it was sort of framed in those terms. There were so many ways that people could sicken and and die, many forms of disease. What I would say, though, is that the impact of smallpox, or rather the, the impact of inoculation, which was going to limit the impact of smallpox, was often discussed by its advocates in particular as a means of preserving the population for the kind of economic health of the nation. And it's actually one of the arguments that Catherine the Great used when thinking about why she wanted to extend inoculation across her empire, that the population of the country is the wealth of the nation. It was absolutely seen like that at the time. And it's interesting reading um, some of the views from France, from people like Voltaire and others. They're looking at Britain and, and arguing for the wider introduction of inoculation into France. And they're kind of weighing up this advantage that Britain has had by preserving lives for the state, whereas France, by not doing so, is losing, or they, they even estimate, you know, millions of people because it hasn't protected their lives with inoculation. So there's absolutely an economic perspective, yeah, through which this is viewed. I remember learning in school about Edward Jenner's use of cowpox to vaccinate people against smallpox. But this book has illuminated me in that there were great efforts long before he came upon this method. That's right. And he gets all the credit. And he is um, in no way seeking to you know, take that glory away from Edward Jenner. He's absolutely the father of vaccination and an extraordinary figure. But it's true that almost no one knows about the history of inoculation that came before Jenner. Even actually um, virologists and immunologists that I've spoken to for talks and other points about this book, you know, this just isn't really taught or known. And it absolutely should be. And it's one of the things that really struck me when I was researching this book. And one of the elements that I really wanted to get across, aside from the actual individual story that I tell in the book. So to explain some terminology. So we use the terms inoculation and vaccination now pretty generically and pretty interchangeably. But in the 18th century, they had very specific meanings. And it's really important to understand that Edward Jenner published his inquiry where he explained vaccination. And that was right at the end of the 18th century in 1798. So before that, what we're talking about is inoculation. And I'll explain the difference. So inoculation was a method of giving someone immunity against the disease, in in this case, in the 18th century, smallpox. And it worked through what I call fighting, or they called as well, fighting fire with fire. So inoculation meant that you would give a healthy individual a tiny dose of live smallpox virus, a tiny dose of the disease. They would have the disease very mildly in a sort of controlled way 
and then they would have immunity for life just as much as if they'd had the full-blown natural disease, which, as you remember, kills one in five people who suffered it. And vaccination, which Jenner proved worked, he didn't sort of discover it, others were doing it, but he was the man who proved that it did give immunity. So vaccination means giving someone, or meant in the 18th century, giving someone a dose of cowpox a kind of cousin of smallpox, but a much, much milder disease, giving them a dose of cowpox, and they'd literally just be ill for a couple of days with kind of flu and very, very few spots, which was also very important. And then they would recover. But cowpox also gave you immunity to smallpox. So that meant that you could fight a really terrible disease with a very mild one. And that was obviously a far lower risk. And the other big advantage that vaccination had over inoculation is that when you are inoculated, imagine I inoculate you, after about six or seven days, you have to isolate yourself because you will be infectious and you could potentially give natural smallpox to someone who's not immune. So in other words, you might end up being saved through being inoculated, but you could literally sort of kill everyone around you if you passed on smallpox to them. And so that was a you know, a huge risk factor for inoculation. It was something that, you know, doctors and communities could handle, but it it was an important risk. And that meant that vaccination was not only a much milder experience, but it was far safer because it didn't, you didn't have to isolate. So that's the difference between the two. Just briefly on the history. So inoculation was by no means a British discovery. It had been used in a different way in China several centuries before it ever came to Europe, and also in northern India and in other parts of Asia and parts of Africa too. And the British took the idea from Turkey. The way that it was done in Turkey and in many parts of Asia was to take, essentially to make a small scratch in the arm of a healthy person, take a little bit of pus from a pustule of someone with smallpox and dab it onto that little scratch, that little puncture in the skin, usually in the arm. And then that person would go away, have two or three weeks of feeling really not great, but then have immunity against this this terrible disease. Compared to the mRNA vaccines that we have nowadays for COVID-19, which have very specific mm-hmm. handling requirements, you have to literally drag an infected person around with you in order to help inoculate people back in the day. <laughs> Yeah, that, that kind of sums it up. Yeah, that's not quite true because smallpox, the inoculum, did actually stay live for quite a long time. Mm. And doctors explored this in Britain, certainly. And in fact, you could do things like soak threads, cotton threads in the pus. And then you could even put them on a kind of glass slide, if you like. And then you could put steam underneath that and it would kind of reactivate the vaccine. So doctors played around with this a lot. And the method in Turkey, it was reported in Britain in two reports to the Royal Society, the big scientific society in Britain, but also by an incredible woman called Lady Mary Wortley Montague. We may not have time to fully talk about, but she's extraordinary. I recommend everyone looks her up. And she witnessed this inoculation procedure going on in Turkey. And she saw elderly women who carried the smallpox pus around in their bosom she said so in a, I think in a walnut shell they would put the pus in there and just go around kind of you know taking what she called a blunt needle and just dabbing it into the arms of children who would then go off and have not too bad an illness and then recover so yeah you didn't absolutely have to have the person with you but it was 
easier to do that. And that is really what doctors broadly did, yeah, in Britain in the 18th century. They, they had someone who had the pustules and then they brought them to the person to be inoculated. And it was kind of arm-to-arm treatment. Now, not content to take a simple method from some people from what, what we've recently learned is Turkey. Turkey. <laughs> Turkey. The British Medical Society has to make things a lot more complicated than they need to be in giving inoculations. <laughs> That's so true. So this very simple method, but highly effective method, arrives from Turkey in two reports, as I say, to that are published in the Philosophical Transactions, which is the Journal of the Royal Society, in a personal kind of advocacy from Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who is an extraordinary woman who has both her children inoculated and sort of uses them to advocate for this incredible technology. And doctors begin to adopt it, frankly, on this basis that this works and nothing else does, they have no cure, there's still no cure now for smallpox. Yeah, so rather than just kind of copying the method that's used in Turkey by these elderly women, they decide that in a way it's kind of more is better. So instead of making a tiny puncture in the arm and inserting a tiny drop of pus of live infected matter, they make large incisions. And I mean really large, deep, and they insert pieces of cotton or lint that are soaked in pus and then they bandage it up. And so they're obviously opening the body to far higher risk of infection. And not only do they do this kind of elaborate piercing of the body and sometimes making several incisions just to make sure that there's plenty of the smallpox matter in the body, they also, in accordance with their kind of humoral understanding of medicine, they keep people really, really warm afterwards. And I mean hot. They kind of patients are put in bed with lots of blankets in rooms with fires burning and the windows closed. And the idea is that you're going to sweat out this this poison, as they called it, inside you. Because the humoral understanding of medicine would suggest that. And in fact, doctors at the beginning of the 18th century understood smallpox as being something that was an innate seed actually in the body. They conceptualized the pustules as the poison making its way out of the body. So the way of thinking about treating that was that you would then warm the body to kind of sweat out this poison. So they kind of combined this, what was actually an incredibly effective technology with old classical thinking to produce a sort of less effective version of inoculation than had been going on in Turkey, where there was, as I say, the possibility of infection. So it's important, though, that it was still dramatically safer than the natural smallpox itself. So instead of one death in every five cases, roughly, which was what, in terms of natural smallpox, the Royal Society did an early analysis and found that about one person in 50 died after inoculation. So you've got a far, far higher chance by being inoculated, particularly on the basis that pretty much everybody got smallpox at some point. And so it was safer. But later in the century, um, doctors did manage to revert to that earlier, very simple method. And then the statistics for inoculation just improved wildly. You know, it became it was really very safe if conducted according to that sort of safe method. So it, it did change over the century. But even so, it's clearly statistically far safer to be inoculated than to than to suffer smallpox. Now, you mentioned this more Baroque method. They were investigating using deep incisions to introduce the infecting matter into people's bodies. But there was a bit of an outsider, one Daniel Sutton. And he was kind of like an inspiration for the modern minimalist movement because he really streamlined the procedure. 
Yeah, he's fascinating. So by the kind of middle of the 18th century, doctors in Britain, at least, were taking inoculation as a principle really seriously. The Royal College of Physicians had backed it in um, 1755. And although there was still wariness, superstition maybe about it among especially the kind of poorer a member of society was, the more they were cautious about this. But in terms of the medical profession, which is kind of quite a difficult term to use, but still, doctors knew this worked and it was in use in many places across Britain and particularly among the kind of elite of the country. But it was still a, you know, a drawn out procedure. It still made people quite ill. There was still a lot of focus on doctors dealing very individually with the patient. All this kind of added to the expense of it and keeping it away from from the poor, even if they were keen to have it. So doctors would talk to the patient, you know, try to get them into the right state in preparation for the procedure by maybe purging them or giving them emetics to vomit or bleeding them, giving them special diets, and then doing all the same thing once they'd actually been inoculated. And, you know, it could actually make them incredibly ill. And funnily enough, Edward Jenner was inoculated as a boy of, I think, eight, seven or eight, and had an absolutely terrible time, was really, really unwell because, you know, this kind of very elaborate procedure was used and it did him an awful lot of harm. But then, yes, there was a family of doctors that came from Suffolk, again, in the east of England, in East Anglia. One of the sons in this family in particular was very kind of entrepreneurial. Um, The family were inoculators. His father was a surgeon and Daniel was a surgeon too. He looked closely at this elaborate procedure for inoculating people and he began to experiment and to recognise that actually a lot of this initial preparation was just not necessary. Neither was very, very importantly, this kind of tradition, if you like, of keeping people very warm after they've been inoculated. And he also worked out that these large incisions that, you know, often caused infection and added kind of extra trouble to the whole procedure, they were also not necessary. So he adopted a very simplified method. He called it no incision inoculation. So that's a tiny little pinprick. Exactly. You're going to recognize that we're going back to what was happening in Turkey. And then not only did he not keep people warm afterwards, but he made them go outside and walk around the garden. And he set up inoculation houses and advertised them in the newspapers. And he charged two or three guineas. And he would include, if you paid a bit extra, he'd include tea or coffee or butter or whatever. And he in a sense, democratized inoculation. He made the process simpler, cheaper, and the recovery quicker. And that meant that it was more affordable, of course, for people. They had to take much less time away from work. They didn't have to pay as much up front. So people began to flock to his his surgery, and he became absolutely extraordinarily rich. He he earned more than the prime minister, and he opened a whole series of inoculation houses and also partnered with other doctors through a system of franchises. But he's interesting because he really did run this as a business enterprise. He kept his method secret. He gave people special powders and he wouldn't kind of let on what he was giving them. They were no really, not really any different from anything that other doctors were doing, but it gave a kind of air of mystique to the whole thing. He had quite an interesting approach. He took on and um, he adopted a, a three word slogan for his business and it was quickly, safely, pleasantly. So he's very kind of up with modern PR methods. He even hired a PR man who was a kind of local vicar who kept writing very extravagant flowery sermons saying how wonderful Daniel Sutton's inoculation system was. And when he was advertising his, his inoculation programs at, at his uh, inoculation house, they sounded like spa breaks. You know, he made it sound like just this kind of fun yoga retreat, really. So it's easy to laugh at him. And he was a bit of a kind of parvenu who 
really wanted social recognition as well as as to make money. But actually, he he really was incredibly important in shifting inoculation from this overcomplicated, difficult, still really rather dangerous approach to something far safer and far, far more accessible for more people and really for reintroducing this very basic method. And that's the one that, you know, when Jenna came to introduce vaccination, he, he simply had to swap smallpox uh, virus for cowpox virus, but the method remained exactly the same. So Sutton, for all his sort of vanity and greed, really, is is very, very important to inoculation history. But do you think this secrecy is kind of did it make it your research difficult into him? And also, do you think that has limited people's research into him in order to educate current day people about the truth of inoculation and its history in Britain? An interesting point. I think it didn't so much make my research difficult. I had to use a lot of digital archives for reasons we'll come to. But if you look in newspaper archives, there are very, very many advertisements that he put in newspapers for his services. You can sort of see what he was doing. In terms of his own practice, other doctors were busily essentially spying. You know, they were trying to find out exactly what he was doing so that they could borrow slash steal his methods. And there's at least one account written by a gentleman in Essex who he inoculated of what happened. And, you know, it's really the same method as was then established in Britain. So it's just that he was doing it first. So it didn't make it particularly hard for me to find out what he was doing. I think the reason that he's not had the profile that he deserves, although there's quite recently been a a really good biography of him published by Yale University Press, but he didn't publish. I mean, in a way, he's, you know, a victim of his own entrepreneurial approach, that he could have publicised what he was doing. But he didn't. He chose to run it as a business and not to tell people what he was doing. And, you know, history finds that a bit harder to record and perhaps to celebrate, you know, and people were always jealous of him. People were trying to take his methods. So he ended up without the place in history that he he genuinely does deserve, in fact. I mean, partly all these inoculators did. It's not just Sutton. It's a whole period that's really been overshadowed by Jenna because he's the name we know. And and he had a biography who gave him a, you know, a huge profile. And maybe we just can't hold this level of history and complexity in our heads. But yeah, Sutton deserves to be better known for sure. This mention of business it makes me think back to when you were mentioning they had come up with statistics on the likelihood of death from natural infection versus inoculation in that process mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, what we would know now is like quantitative analysis. Back then, they viewed as the mercantile way of looking yeah. at things. That's right. In fact, that takes us back to when inoculation first came to Britain, brought by these reports from Turkey. And that's in 1720, really, or a little bit earlier even. The first inoculators, including a doctor called Thomas Nettleton in Halifax in in Yorkshire in England, he was the first person to talk about this mercantile idea. Nettleton had read about these methods and he'd heard about Lady Mary Wortley Montague and also about the Princess of Wales, Caroline of Ansbach, who had had her two princess daughters inoculated on Lady Mary's advice. And this was a hugely high profile event in 1721. And he decided to just try out this method just himself because there was a terrible smallpox 
epidemic in his part of Yorkshire and he could see whole kind of families of children dying from it and he really thought that you know he had nothing to lose so he introduced inoculation himself and he just tried it out and sure enough everybody he inoculated survived and yet people with natural smallpox were were still dying in huge numbers and he wrote an analysis that really did just consist of two columns you know what's the mortality rate of people with natural smallpox and what's the mortality rate of people he was inoculating and he started off with his own experience of people he knew. And then he kind of rode on horseback around the north of England talking to other doctors who were doing the same thing and gathered these statistics. And he wrote to a friend in London who passed his results on to the Royal Society. And the way that he expressed this was to use what he called the merchant's logic, you know, this raw comparison of data of, you know, how many more deaths are you getting or what's the greater likelihood of of dying? And, you know, that balance came down absolutely unequivocally on the side of inoculation as the safer option. And that is seen as at the beginning of using this kind of quantitative analysis of use of statistics to analyse a medical procedure. So, you know, I'm sure it was the same in the US when we had daily briefings or often daily from our government scientists and, and they would be doing exactly the same thing with COVID data. Once we had vaccination, we were looking at analysing that statistically, analysing mortality rates. And, you know, this all dates back to these early smallpox inoculation pioneers in Britain. It's amazing to see how much of kind of resistance, not only but in England, but in France and other places, it very much echoes today on what we've seen with people's resistance to vaccines. That's right. And I think what I found really striking is how quickly that resistance happened, that opposition, if you like. So I mentioned Thomas Nettleton. He began doing this in late 1721. That he wrote his letter, as I as I say, explaining what he was doing. So his first kind of account of what he was doing, he said that there was already opposition to what he was doing. And he talked about false report. So he's really saying fake news, you know, that people were denying the effectiveness of what he was doing that people were trying to put other people off, that literally that no sooner had inoculation touched English soil, but people were opposing it. And similarly, in London, once uh, I mentioned that the royal inoculations, they'd come after a number of royal experiments on prisoners and orphans, and then these two princesses were inoculated. So there was obviously enormous amounts of talk and publicity around inoculation. It's extremely high profile uh, examples of it. Again, a backlash absolutely instantly. The first instance of the term anti-inoculators that I found was precisely 300 years ago um, was in, well, it was in um, 1722 in September in a document. So you can see that it's absolutely the moment this thing appears, some people are, are opposing it. The immediate backlash in Britain was it began with a kind of, well, where's God in all this? You know, if God's way of using disease is to punish sin and suddenly we can kind of fend off disease, prevent it in this way. Where does that leave divine intervention? Where does it leave God? And but in Britain, that's just the fact this worked kind of is it's remarkable, really, how, how soon those arguments did die away. I mean, you were still hearing them sort of a few decades later, but they were just sort of marginal voices, really. And then, of course, there's there were people saying, well, hang on. What about if we were to avoid smallpox? Why would we take this upfront risk? 
for something that we, you know, a much greater risk that we may never have to run. And that really is a lot of what still, you know, worries people about vaccinations. We do find it very hard to kind of weigh risks accurately. Our psychology is really not very good at that. And, you know, there's still always this notion of, well, I might escape COVID. Why would I need this vaccine? You know, aside from the, does it work? You know, there's just that kind of nagging thing of, well, there's optimism bias. I'm probably not going to have to worry about it. I might avoid this disease. And yeah, in France, absolutely the same thing. Really interesting debate. It was in France that the really um, sort of detailed, if you like, ethical debates about inoculation happened, less so in Britain. So you get people like Voltaire and Diderot and the other French intellectuals, the philosophes, really, really supporting. They were the voices of support for inoculation and they saw it as an enlightened technology, if you like, an enlightened innovation. It was a technique that was not based on any kind of theory or inherited dogma. This was something that just worked and observation you know revealed that and that was absolutely the way that enlightened 18th century science looked at things you know does it work it's not that someone's telling you it does but you have tried it you've experimented this is empirical you know we know from evidence that this is effective and so these philosophers lined up to support it but the French state, you know, the medical profession, the church were, were deeply reluctant. And so France had long and detailed, elaborate debates about it, where they talked about the role of reason in apparent making a, a decision. You know, how should you balance emotion and reason? What should the rational parent do if they love their child? Should they have them inoculated or not? And they went to and fro with these debates. And meanwhile, the British were just kind of getting on with it. Not everybody, but, you know, just as always, not really having the philosophical arguments, but just pragmatically um, going along with what seemed to work. The new does threaten the old, and uh, the Academy yeah. did not want to entertain new ideas. No, it didn't. Whereas in Britain, it almost didn't kind of reach the Academy. This is where you, you know, what you're reading about when you look at inoculation in Britain is doctors discussing it. People are writing in, in magazines like the Gentleman's Magazine and kind of considering it. And you get churchmen kind of intervening. But Really, a lot of it, a lot of the discussion is about methods and doctors kind of sharing and swapping ideas on the best way to go about it. I'm not saying by any means it was, you know, thoroughly adopted by, you know, at all levels of society in Britain, far from it. But there wasn't a kind of top down opposition. And in fact, importantly, very importantly, George III, obviously the king at the, at the time that um, of my story, was fully supportive of inoculation. He had his children inoculated. He'd actually had smallpox himself. He hadn't been inoculated. But, you know, the Georgian kings were supportive of this technology. So that was another huge advantage for encouraging that practice in Britain. Well, Lucy, I think we've we've set the scene quite well, but we need to leave off at this moment because we've come to the end of our time. Would you join me again so we can actually talk about the titular characters of our drama here, the Empress and the Doctor? I would love to. Thank you very much. Okay. Until next time. Lucy Ward is the author of The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, which is published by One World Publications and distributed by Simon & Schuster. Join us next time as we get into the cooperation between Catherine the Great and Dr. Thomas Dimsdale. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.